Hello, this is Graphic Policy Radio, and this is your host, Elon Levin. And this is a comics podcast. This is a comics podcast for the kind of folks who love their stories with superheroes, especially queer superheroes, whether they come from our corner of the galaxy or a distant, distant star. Joining me on the show today is Jadzia Axelrod, she of the greatest name in comics. Hello, welcome to the show. <laughs> Hello. I'm very excited to be here. Yay. Her bio, for those who might not know already, is uh, she is an author, an illustrator, and a world changer. Throughout her eventful life, she has been a circus performer, a puppeteer, a graphic designer, a sculptor, a costume designer, and a fellow podcaster, and quite a few other things, but she's lost track. With the writer business at the heart of it, though, Jadzia is the author of Galaxy, The Prettiest Star, a new graphic novel illustrated by Jess Taylor and published by DC Comics, which has just been nominated for a GLAAD Award. Yay! I know, I was very excited to hear it. Uh, she is the author and illustrator behind Frankenstein's support group for Misunderstood Monsters, a comic about monsters and feelings for Quirk Books, a lot of which is on her website you can check out. Uh, she is also the writer and producer of award-winning podcast, The Voice of Free Planet X, where she interviews stranded time travelers, low-rent superheroes, unrepentant monsters, and other such creature of sci-fi and fantasy, as well as the podcasts Aliens You Will Meet and Fables of the Flying City. The story started in Fables of the Flying City is concluded in The Battle of Blood and Ink, a graphic novel published by Tor. She is not domestic. She is a luxury and in that sense, necessary. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I love your bio. It is, it is, it goes to show folks like you will make more interesting comics when you do many interesting things in your life. Not, not, not just the one thing. And that, you know, we all have different roots and paths to getting here. H how did you get into comics uh, as a, as a reader and then as a creator? I've always been into comics since I was able to read. Um, I was a huge fan of the super friends television show as a small child. Mm. I had all the toys. I had the justice league playset. And <laughs> um, one day I was at a yard sale with my father and I saw a flash comic book and it's like i need this it's a comic book mm. about my favorite character from super friends please and that particular issue of flash has a scene where um the flash has to be the flash and barry allen at the same time in front of a person um it's to prove that he's not a murderer but it doesn't really matter what what's right. important part is he has to go to his own apartment and answer the door as Barry Allen while standing next to this woman as the flash. And he does that by running super fast, so fast that no one can see back and forth, taking off his costume, putting on a bathrobe, taking off the bathrobe, putting on the costume again, and just doing that super fast so that the after image of both um, allows him to literally talk to himself. And I was so blown away by this as a small child, just that mm -hmm. this could happen and also the way it was illustrated on the page. Um, it, I think, broke my head a little bit. And like hmm. that made comics my favorite medium going forward. And let, as you said, when you talk about my bio, I've done a lot of other things, but I keep going back to comics because it is a medium that I love and that I feel you can do incredible things with um, that you can't do in other mediums. You know, I, I've been always kind of been a speedster fan myself. I, I'd love to know, like, wh what do you think was it that appealed to you about Flash in particular as a kid, as well as that scene? Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think, I think there's something to be said for how 
relatively grounded super speed is as a superpower. Um, like everyone can run. And so like the mm. idea of like what you can do, but really fast has a different <laughs> sort of power fantasy than like being able to fly or shoot lasers out of your eyes or have a magical wishing ring. Like there's a different level of um, it's a lot closer, I guess. Hmm. So that may be part of the appeal. Um, oh, also, the costume is great. It like, is a great costume. Can we just say, like, it's one of the best superhero costumes. Like, it's all red. It's got the lightning bolt belt. It's got those cool mercury things uh, over the ears. Yellow boots. It's like a really, just a great costume. Yeah, there's a reason why they, like, basically never change it in a world where so many get changed, you know? I would say that um, Jess Chambers, the f- when they become Flash and it has the black in it, that's, I think, a better Flash costume. But it, mm. it says something that it took us like 60 years to get a better <laughs> Flash costume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, perhaps uh, the lightning bolt prefiguring what mayhaps would become a later interest in the works of David Bowie. <laughs> it's true. I have been attracted to that shape all my life. Same, same. That's so funny. So how did you start writing comics? Were yeah, you were writing like, and drawing when you began, right? Or Yeah, like I have notebooks from when I was, let's see, first grade, maybe even kindergarten, where I was drawing, yeah, kindergarten, where I was just drawing comics. And like the comics of that time that I was drawing was um, essentially funny animals. They were, hmm. uh, it was about a raccoon who wore a baseball cap all the time <laughs> and... <laughs> Um, went to high school for some reason. I don't know why I put it in high school as a kindergartner. It just seemed like the coolest thing to do, I guess. Oh, totally. Yeah. And like, and just had relationships with other things and they were supposed to be funny. I don't think any of them ever were, but I didn't care. I was drawing them and having fun. So I was always drawing and writing comics, even from the beginning. And I would do that. I did that all through grade school, did it all through middle school, um, did it all through high school. Um, and continued in like in college and then after like I've always been doing this I've always been doing this to various levels of personal success as far as how I felt um, doing Mm. them but uh, it's just something I've always done and keep going back to like I step away from them for a while Um, like I've got really into podcasting I wanted to do more theater stuff like all there's always been times when I'm like I'm not gonna do comics and then I end up picking it back up because it's a medium that always entrances me and it's one I love um writing and drawing in well you're not my only friend who's a comics person who also has done work in puppetry actually (laughs) I'm not surprised yeah this feels really different to me because 3d is just like creating things in physical space is always you know there's this whole like added level of like, well, this thing that I have made literally fall apart before it is utilized. Sure. Um, well, like I think for me, a lot of making art is problem solving and that's what excites me. Um, it's why I love writing stories because that's all it is, is problem solving um, where you create a problem and then you have to have, have to create great characters who solve it. Um, mm. And then how do we, how do we solve the problem of like this character isn't working quite right or this setting is and all that stuff. Like it's all problem solving. It's all Legos. It's all like, how does this piece fit? And like building puppets is very similar. And it's like, how do we make this thing that is not alive act and look and behave like it is enough that people are 
in, entertained, not necessarily convinced, but entertained. And like, that's a whole nother set of problem solving. And that's why that's attractive to me. Yeah. How did you get interested in, in puppets as a medium too, though? I mean, I've always been, it's again, like these are things that I've carried with me from childhood. My parents were very encouraging of all my weird creative needs. And like, mm. they took me to puppet workshops and they took me to panels where people talk about making movies. And they, they took me to all these things that ins- instilled a awareness of how these things happen. Right. I think mm. one thing I really like about what my parents did growing up is that they really noticed that I was interested in how things worked and they went out of their way to show me how things worked. And if they couldn't do it, then they took me to someone who could. And that was something Mm. that they uh, did throughout um, my entire childhood. And to really be like, this is how these things are made. This is how these things are put together. It's not just something that happens and then you enjoy it. Like there are people behind it and this is how they do that because I know you're interested in that. And and that mm-hmm. was really gave me a groundwork because now when I do my own creative stuff, like I don't have a lot of the anxiety I've, I've heard other creators have where it's like, oh, mm-hmm. people are going to be upset because they're going to learn I'm not a god. And it's like, yeah, no, I know I'm not a god. I know creators are not gods. I've met them. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. It's fine. We're all allowed to be fallible and human and all this stuff. And that's what makes our stuff great. Um, but yeah, from an early age, it was like, this is how these things work. Is this, is this still interesting to you now that you know how it's made? And I was like, even more so. Hmm. That's really cool. Thank you. Well, what's the story behind the Galaxy graphic novel? How did that come to be? How did that come to be at DC? They have this really interesting line, for those who don't know, of like YA graphic novels that are sort of standalone. And this sort of was part of that part of that line, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, Galaxy is a funny beast because at the time, it was not, they weren't doing original characters um, when I pitched. Mm-hmm. And what happened was this is all, like people ask me, how did you break into comics? And what they mean by that is how did you break into one of the big two comics? Not how you break into comics, because how you break into comics is you make comics and there you've broken in. <laughs> uh, but like, how did you get one of the largest publishers to publish your stuff? And it was one of those things where a lot of luck happened. And I was just prepared when that opportunity knocked. Because it was like my agent at the time was talking to Michelle Wells, who was the editor of the YA line at the time. And she was trying to do this YA line. It was very early in the thing. Like, I think they'd only had two books come out at this time because this was a while ago. It took a long time for Galaxy to get made because of the pandemic and all sorts of things. But they had gotten a lot of big name YA and middle grade authors and they were looking for people who were less expensive, <laughs> essentially, mm. <laughs> who were not as famous. And um, she talked to my agent at the time and is like, we need, we're really looking for people who, have, who know these characters and know this world, but have a different point of view. And my a- agent at the time turned to her and said, have I got the girl for you? And mm. uh, we had an email conversation and we had a phone call and then I sent them five pitches um, four of which was like 
this is probably what they're going to do. And then at the bottom was the pitch that would turn into Galaxy. Um, mm. And that was the one they liked. And it was the pitch that was like, I'm going to kick myself if I don't put in a, a trans hero in this. Like, And there's right. not really a trans hero. I mean, there's trans characters. There's plenty of trans characters, but there's not a trans superhero per se. Because this was before even Nicole Maines was on television as Dreamer. Hmm. And I was like, but I'm gonna I'm gonna put this in and hopefully they'll go for it. I didn't even think they were. I thought they were gonna pick the one where a teenage Lex Luthor takes over a boarding school. Like that was the one mm-hmm. I thought they were gonna pick. <laughs> right. Um but no, they picked Galaxy and um they were willing to develop it as an original character. And they've since developed other original characters like they clearly had this in mind. Um, because mm-hmm. there were others that came out before us. But it was like for the longest time, DC had a embargo on new characters. Like people weren't allowed to make new characters at DC Comics. And one of the things Michelle was excited about was breaking that and bringing in new types of characters and new types of situations for those characters. And Galaxy fit that bill perfectly. Because, um, yeah, there really is this difference between protagonists and like people who are in somebody else's cast, you know? Yes. Oh, my. so when we talk about the DC Book of Pride, we can talk about that because that writing that book radicalized me. But mm. yes, there's a lot of difference between a character who gets the screen, gets the whole book about them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, who gets all the page time and then a character who like will get a scene and then they don't show up for like six months because the major crossover happens. And then they show up again and their lives are radically different. And like something happened to them in between those two six months that we didn't see them um but we'll never know because um it's not their story um or they're exactly the same and the hero Mm. will have gone through all of these changes and the um, side character will still just be that person they were at the beginning um that's such a good point yeah because you know we don't follow them so their lives don't move so galaxy was going to be a a queer trans character right off the bat. And um, I think what attracted, what attracted to them was a lot of things, obviously. Um, One is that I'm a great writer. So obviously they wanted to work (laughs) with me. Um, But one of the things I think they liked was that it was a character who was both trans in reality and trans in metaphor. And that it could work. um, Because we've seen a lot of characters that are trans in metaphor. And that yeah. turned out to be not little really trans in the um, text, but like you can see them as trans. And so to have a character who was both, who is that had that metaphorical element so that people who are not necessarily trans feminine could still see themselves in her, but also still have the trans feminine journey, I think was something that was very attractive. Um, yeah, like I wanted to tell people, I know you might assume that this is just a trans character in terms of their super, ha- like supernaturally trans, but she is also trans. It's both. It's right. both guys. <laughs> yeah. And I think that has tripped up some readers. And, you know, I, you know, that I don't know what to say about that. But like, I have noticed that a lot of people um, who are not trans feminine, and this is non binary, this is trans masculine, and this is cis people have all talked to me about how much they identify with the character. And I'm, I'm not certain that would have happened if we hadn't done the metaphorical fantasy element. Um, mm. I think it allowed us to talk in a broad enough strokes that people could see what was going on, but also still keep 
the um, the realism of the trans experience, I think. I mean, like, it, I'm biased. Yeah. I think it's great. Mm-hmm. I do. I do, too. I mean, but, like, I think it's so good that she also is, like, like actually also trans in the real yes. human way because they used to just it used to just be metaphor like that was all people were allowed to do for such a long time right. so let's talk about the the, the core story um mm-hmm. for folks who haven't read it yet of of galaxy right so it's about our heroine galaxy she's a space princess in exile and she's come to earth um and she, in order to hide out, her appearance is transformed so that she looks human, but also on top of that, she looks like a human boy. She's been that way for years. And it is not until Kat, the new girl, shows up um, and they start a relationship that that disguise, that persona becomes too hard to keep up. And she wants to be who she truly is. And it's very much like a romance and relationship centered story, but Yes. One with a really so- strong sci-fi setting. Mm-hmm. I would say that's true. Yeah, it's a it's a romantic comedy that has sci-fi and superhero elements. And there's also a talking dog. Yes, he's very cute. Um, I love Argus. Yeah. I think one of the really powerful pieces of the metaphor is the metaphor of the jewel near her heart, which is what mm-hmm. keeps her in this human boy form and how it's cr- causing this pain there. That felt really effective. Yeah, that was like early on in the writing process. It's like I need I need her to have something deep inside that causes her a lot of pain. And it's a physical thing. And then when she transforms into her true self, that pain just goes away. Um, and like that, having her have a jewel, um, something that's beautiful, but also difficult to hold on to. Um, because of where it is and how it is and what she has to, and how she has to hide it to live in this society. It just was something that came together really quickly. And how the adult in her life, you know, like can't fathom why this could be a problem. Right. Cause he doesn't have a jewel in his chest. <laughs> like she has that cause she's the princess. Um, and like, and she's special. And like the, the other people she's with her human in quotes family like they've all been transformed to from their original selves, but they don't have what she has. And so they don't understand what she's going through. Mm-hmm. And you definitely are doing a lot of work, like showing how this alien family feels the need that it has to perform as this like perfect nuclear human suburban white bread family in order to survive. And like, it's sort of seems clear how like, She's not the only person who's suffering from that, but she's very much suffering from it in a way that some of the other characters really don't understand. Certainly the other adult doesn't realize, doesn't even realize he's suffering, but her older brother does realize he's suffering and just manifests in a lot of resentment. And it just feels like, yeah, this nuclear family thing that's being forced on them is really harmful for everybody involved, come to think of it, but also especially for the trans character. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, one of the things I love about the cast of this book is like, it's really like, I like them. I like them all. And I like being able to spend time with them and get into their heads. And so like, there's a, I have a real sympathy for everyone who is in the book. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe not book, but like everyone else. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and to really like delve into like how they would feel. Cause this is the interesting thing to me about these kind of stories 
Um, and this is why I love superhero comics and why I love science fiction in general and fantasy genre is like, I love giant ideas. Sure. Those are fun. But really what is interesting to me is how do people react in these giant ideas? Like when you are an alien in disguise on earth, how does that make you feel? Um, how does it feel to have something powerful and wonderful about yourself that you have to hide for whatever reason? Like that's, that like that's fast more fascinating to me than um meeting a space god and having an adventure on the planet Mortov or whatever like let's let's talk about how you feel that's that's fascinating i love i just i'm a character based writer i get my jollies by like digging into these characters and figuring out what makes them tick and how they feel and mm. i really wanted Taylor's family to not feel like bad guys, right? Like they, they are not the best for certain, but they are not evil and they are trying their best in a difficult situation. And sometimes when you're doing that, your, your best isn't good enough. And that's not, doesn't make you an evil person, but it uh, does mean that you are doing harm. And I guess there's a difference between those two. And I really wanted to explore that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I also really liked her relationship with Kat and Kat's mom um, and this sort of supportive family that, you know, just isn't super phased by the alien thing and think it's really cool, actually. Um, I, I love the dialogue where, like, she's, you know, leaning in to kiss and she's like, and Kat's like, I'm not into guys. And their response, I'm not a guy, is like, oh, it's like one of those single panels that it means so much in context of the story, but it also is a meme. <laughs> well, thank you. I love a good meme. Right. I, I think it's really interesting too, that they let this happen specifically in a YA book, which is, you know, at one point in our lives, right. They would have been mm -hmm. like, well, you could do this in an adult book, but no way in a right. YA. And now it feels like there's so much more queerness in YA than there often is in like more mainstream, not in like queer independent press, but in like more mainstream um, press like a lot of times there's more queer stuff in the OIA than in the adult books right and I've heard from parents of even younger reader, readers than traditional YA stuff and they love it mm. and it's really affirming to them who are just exploring their gender and their sexuality and like having these questions and so and part of that is um, you know, it's a very friendly book to pick up like the art is gorgeous um, it is you know, and uh, the the writing is great. Again, I'm just going to toot my own <laughs> horn. But it's, you know, it's about a girl and her talking dog and like all of this stuff that's traditionally like younger reader stuff and that we've kind of put in a YA. And we've mixed and matched with like some sort of younger fantasy stuff. We've done some older sexuality and gender stuff and it all kind of comes together in this great YA sludge that I love <laughs> to drink. And this is a new setting. It's like, you know, a new setting in DC. Like, it's a world in which Superman exists. Superman is mentioned in a specific way. I, I actually mm -hmm. really like how you handled that. We'll talk about that in a bit. But it's also like a new setting. So if somebody doesn't read DC Comics, they're not going to be confused. Right. Well, that was one of the things I was really excited about writing DC. Because there's all of these fictional geography, right? Like, there's Metropolis, and there's Coast City, and there's Themyscira, and there's... Um, Central City, right? All these fake 
areas. And I I really wanted to contribute to that in a small way. Mm. So there was talk of like putting us in an established area like Smallville. And I I pushed it back in that part because I wanted this to be separate from the larger narrative. And like once you put something in Smallville, you have to then ask, well, how does this fit with people who know about Superman? And I'm like, "Mm, well, let's let's push it a little farther away. And people still know about Superman, but it's different when you're from Smallville. So I was able to create mm-hmm. Osma Gap, which is my own little corner of the DCU. Um, and it just made me so happy to do that. And it doubly made me happy to see how Jess illustrated it. And I was like, this is perfect. Thank you. This is just what I wanted. You know, I just realized Osma Gap kind of reminds me of um, Osma from um, the Wizard of Oz. Right, yeah. I totally haven't picked up on that until you said it out loud. Now I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, and there's one part where, uh, like, an Ozma doll makes a very prominent appearance in an emotional moment. Like, um, that character has always fascinated me. Um, because if you're familiar with um, her original appearance, she spends most of the uh, story as Pip, a boy. <laughs> And then is transformed back into her true self, Ozma, at the very end. And it's mm. a very strange moment for her um, because she has thought of herself as a boy the whole time, but also known that something wasn't right. And, and it's not surprising that many trans people have latched onto this narrative. And mm-hmm. so part of this was to like take that, the Ozma narrative, and like, really invest in it a 21st century trans energy and and bring that so galaxy has a similar journey um to ozma though i didn't reread the book because i didn't want to have that overly influence what i wanted to write and because like i didn't want you to be like oh there's here's how these characters line up with the oz characters because that's not the book i wanted to write but i did want to like have some nods in there. So there's the Osman there. Um, we say that the pizza place that everyone goes to is Mombi's, which is the witch that transforms um, Osman to Pip. Like, there's all sorts of little bits and boops if you catch it. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I, it's not. I'm not super familiar with the story, so. Uh, but I think that's a really cool reference and such a queer, like such a queer to the core, you know, like story and reference. So. Um, so yeah, talk about the creation of your central character galaxy, like working with the artist, developing the character design and all that. Um, yeah. Um, it's funny because like Jess nailed the characters on the first pass. Like they did mm-hmm. a first pass of the group and I was like, yeah, all of these are perfect. All of these are per- like, you did it. And then they did one of galaxy and her, alien form um and i was like that's wrong (laughs) (laughs) and we had to go back and forth a lot um and i had done a drawing of galaxy way back before there was ever an artist attached just so people would know um what the character might look like as part of the pitch process so i Mm. had an attachment of what i wanted the character to look like um and to Jess's credit, we're still very close to that. So thank you, Jess. Mm. Um, but we went back and forth on a lot of how to present her, how to present her body, how to present um, her alienness, because I did want her to be like not necessarily 
a physical representation of like a teenage trans girl who's early into hormones, but I did want her to be tall and I wanted her to have broad shoulders and I wanted that to Mm -hmm. be something that she deals with. Um, And then we went back and forth on the horns for some, because everything either felt um, derivative, right? Like this looks like an alien we've seen somewhere else. Or it mm. felt too into the fantasy genre. Because my original thing was something uh, akin to antlers. And Jess was like, we're not doing antlers. Because the moment we do antlers, they look like elves. And I'm like, all right, that's mm. fair. That's fair. Um, so we went back through like so many horn variations. And uh, Jess came up with this wonderful one that like sticks out the back, but also has the like headphone sh- thing over the top that could also look like a race car speeder. And I was like, this is great. I love this. This Mm. looks like nothing else I've ever seen. And then they did some cool variations of how like an adult version would look with lots of spires coming out. And I was like, this is beautiful. You've done it. Um, Mm. Because it was a a thing of like, we're not just designing a character, we're designing a race. And like, how does the whole race look compared to how Galaxy looks? And that was another thing that we went back and forth a lot on. Um, well, I, th- I I thought a lot about the horns sort of resembling a halo in like yeah too. It says a lot, and it's it's such a great visual. It's not like anything we've ever seen on an alien before, and so I I loved it. And it still makes her look human, which is also mm-hmm. something I love because we talked about maybe having her be a little more alien in the face, and I, I was pushing back against that because I wanted her to have a, a human-esque face. I was like, let's make this a Star Trek alien, not a Star Wars alien. Yes, um, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and I think she looks great. Like I, I've, The moment I saw this design, I was like, this is it. This is the one. I, I, I love this so much. And it's been really great to then see fan art of this design and see Mm, how well it works in a lot of different styles, which is not something you can say about every character design. Like some people only works in the style that they do. Um, And so to watch people who have a different style than just take it in either a more realistic or a more um, cartoony or more fluid and languid direction has been really fascinating and wonderful. I love all the fan art. Yes, and please, please keep sharing the fan art. I know, like, how much creators appreciate seeing their original characters. You know, <clears throat> that's so cool. And yeah, I mean, and you have, you know, you have um, her love interest, which is another great character design. Yeah, Cat's wonderful. I love Cat. Everyone else in the story thinks so too, which I also like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's not always the way with new girls, though. Like, someone comes to town, <laughs> and it's like, oh my god, that's the most attractive person in the world because they're just not from here. <laughs> not that yeah, Kat yeah. is not attractive on her own way. She absolutely right. is. But like she's desirable because of her alienness. And that was something that was fun to play with, with a literal alien character. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to go into too much of a spoiler, but it's interesting to see there's one character who handles the alienness of meeting, you know, Kat, who is a young woman from Metropolis uh, in a very different way than he handles realizing Galaxy, who he's known all along, is also an alien. Right. Yeah. And that yeah, felt that very real, very too. Yeah, that was a very deliberate thing to put in. Well, another piece also is, you know, uh, Galaxy's, like, human boy... Yeah, yeah. I just, I think it's, I think the story is really going to resonate with a lot of folks. So. It certainly has seemed to. Like, I was not prepared for the response. 
like the the week it came out, I, I got so many like emails and Twitter um, DMs and all sorts of things from people who um, had never seen themselves in a book before. And this is not to say that Galaxy is something brand new. Like there's other mm-hmm. characters similarly and certainly other trans characters and other medium. I think what is new about Galaxy is because she's attached to DC Comics, she got a farther spread than some of those other stories. Um, yeah. And that it was accessible to people in a way that um, other narratives that deal with this stuff has not been. Um, like it means something that A, it's a ta- it's got the DC logo on the cover um, mm-hmm. and B that DC pushed it. Like they really mm-hmm. pushed. It. I was surprised. Like there was ads in all of their books. Like they did a free comic book day. I was like, yeah, they did three um, free comic book days last year. And I was like, this is the tie in to the big summer crossover. This is our tie in to the big summer movie. And this is our um, gay trans original character (laughs) which you don't know i was like that's it was amazing that they were doing that and they were pushing it and i i really um you hear so many horror stories of of characters of creators who are doing queer stuff and trans stuff and it gets buried yeah Um, and it was just really great to feel like the publisher for this book was not ashamed of it and wanted Mm -hmm. it in people's hands and it's gotten into people's hands which has been amazing and again, like, you know, her being a protagonist really solidifies that. There's, um, yeah. there was an episode of my podcast. Uh, we, there was a write, writers on who had created a really awesome non-binary character in the cast of a major superhero. And we were talking mm-hmm. about how great they were. But I also was like, I can't say it to them, but like, I know we're never going to see them again as soon as you guys stop writing this book. Because like, whoever's writing it next, like, they're probably not even doing their homework. And if they do, they, they're not going to prioritize this like really awesome cast member that you created. I really hope I see them again. But like, as a queer reader, like we all know, we're like probably not going to see them again. <laughs> so it's, um, I mean, I guess there's also something about it being, you know, outside of canon where there's also a bit more freedom as well. Oh, it's not outside of canon. This is part of continuity. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. Like it's not clear. It's not abundantly clear, right? Like it's not something where you, you read it and you're like, this ties into whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. But galaxy is definitely a character in the DCU that you and I know and love. And like a lot of the um, why books are um, in their own little world. So I understand a lot of people assuming that this was that way, but no, they are, um, she is in the same world as everybody else. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. I think a lot of listeners, I think people listeners are going to be really split on whether or not that sort of thing matters. And I think it really, even if like somebody personally doesn't care one way or the other, like the reality is for a lot of people, like it's completely understandable that it matters to them that these characters exist in the same world as the other things that they're emotionally invested in because it has a way of declaring a footprint. They're like, yes, we're real. We matter. And we're not just in this corner, like the world you care about and have been emotionally invested in as a superhero soap opera for however long Mm -hmm. in your life has us in it. Right. Um, 
So like, even if you're like, who cares about corporate art? Like the reality is like people do. So since they do, like, you're not going to have, like people are not going to suddenly stop caring about, I I don't know. It's uh, contentious stuff in the community, but like, I'm all about being realistic about what people care about. So Mm -hmm. I love also like the moment Kat talks, like Kat's thoughts about Superman. I thought that was really insightful. She says that Alexi or, uh, you know, was or not yet embraced that name, but um, Taylor, you know, is like, yeah, Taylor is like, you know, what, what's it? You're from Metropolis. What's it like meeting Superman? And Kat saying like, you only see Superman if it's like the worst day of your life. Is is a really real? It felt like a really real way way to to look at the character. Yeah, we're so used to seeing superheroes on their level and what they go through, and and that's great. But I really wanted to examine Kat as like someone who grew up in Metropolis and is like, what does that mean? And it means is like, if you've met Superman, something bad has happened to you because you needed to be saved. And like, that's, that's a weird way to think about superheroes. Cause again, we've always thought of them on their own terms. And it's just something that, again, I like thinking about what ordinary people go through in these extraordinary circumstances. And it, it explains both, Taylor's um, reticence to kind of be a superhero um, mm. and also exemplifies Kat's arc because she's like superheroes only show up when something bad happens. And then by the end of the book, she's saying, you know, you should really be a superhero. Like she's come <laughs> around. I mean, one of the great lines from the book from, from galaxy is being normal was never going to save me. That's my uh, with great power comes great responsibility moment. Um, totally. Yeah. Because I feel like that's something that I know I struggled with. And I, I've heard variations of that from other queer and trans people is this belief that if we can just be normal enough, um, we'll be fine. And that's not true because um, you're never going to be normal enough, first off. But also, like, denying such an important part of yourself is just going to eat you up inside. So to have her be, that would be her moment and be like, um, what's going to save you is not conforming to what other people think you should be. Like, that was just the book as a whole, but also a really important, like, that's her superhero moment for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I love that moment. Yeah, I I agree. It really resonates. Let's talk about pretty clothes. <laughs> did, yes. Did, did you work on those a lot, or was that a lot of the work from um, from your artists? And like, how do you guys work together when it comes oh, to that well, kind of creation? Yeah, I sent just so many clothing references um, because this is an important part of my process when thinking about characters. It's like, but how are they dressed? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have all these reference images just for my process, and I put them in the script anyway. Like here. Looks like this. And it got to the point where we were restructuring a scene and we needed more. It's the um, where she's shopping for a homecoming dress and we, we were mm-hmm. restructuring it. And so um, we wanted like just wanted to do a like a montage kind of thing where he's yes. different dresses. And I was and so and it wasn't like they had a dress ideas. They're like, so could you send me some dress ideas? Because I would like to do this. But I don't know what dresses to have and i'm like i've got you 
It's okay. I've been waiting. Here for you this go, moment. and just gave them a bunch of. Them. <laughs> so yeah, I, like I love dressing up my characters in cute little outfits. I feel like that's an important part of character, um, in general. Like, how do these mm-hmm. people dress, and what do they choose? And especially in a visual medium, it's important to make sure everyone has a different silhouette, which Jess is genius about. But also, everyone has a distinctive style of dress and a different way of dressing, and it that communicates some of their character as much mm-hmm. as the dialogue. Um, so yeah, I loved all the little outfits. I sent so many from like fashion bloggers and like people I follow on Instagram and like all of this and that and be like, and then Jess took that and put their own spin on it. Um, and it worked out great. Like I had a Letterman jacket on Taylor for most of the book and Jess wasn't into that and instead gave Taylor these amazing series of sweaters that I just love um, Mm. that are colorful and different and great and say so much with the color palette. And so it's still the same kind of vibe, but it's more Jess and that's great for me. I love it. Well, it's great to have like two queer creators working together, you know, two trans creators too. Like that was the other thing, like, Uh, Jess is non-binary and they really vibed with the story and like knew what I was doing. And so to have, have that was great. Uh, It was, you know, and then even the letter Ariana Maher's by, and like, so it was like a very queer Mm -hmm. creative team. (laughs) Um, And to have the writer and artist both be trans, it was like perfect. It was like, I couldn't have asked for something better. It's so great. Yeah. I mean, I just think we think about the importance of what you wear as character work. And I think in often a different way than a lot of other people do. Oh, I didn't consider that. Yeah, probably. And it's just weird sort of, you know, the the conflict of like trying to be legible and legible how and legible to who. You right. Know? Well, I know it's uh, all of this too is like, I'm a lifelong comics reader. And so what I'm trying to do is not the things that bothered me. <laughs> reading these stories mm-hmm. growing up. And one thing I always hated was when characters like always wore the same thing when they were not in costume or when they wore stuff that didn't fit with their character. Um, I know. A lot of female so characters bad. are needlessly sexed up. Mm-hmm. And like, sometimes and that's well. fine. Yeah. Like if you're doing Felicia Hardy, um, yeah, of course she's wearing a very sexy outfit. That's all she owns. But like... <laughs> Um, some other characters, it doesn't quite fit. And like, yeah, I really wanted to be clear about what people were wearing when they were wearing it and how they were wearing it, because that was something that just always bothered me as a reader. Same, same. Um, you know, what makes, what makes a book like this, like fit into the YA category? Because there's a lot, it's not just that it has teenage characters, although that's Mm -hmm. obviously a piece of it. Like, how, how does YA work as, like, when you're making something? You know, I asked um, my agent at the time, uh, what's the difference between YA and, like, middle grade? Mm. And what's the difference between YA and literary fiction? And she said, um, the difference between YA and literary fiction is that it's about teenagers. The difference between YA and middle grade is they get to have sex in YA. <laughs> that was it. Um I don't know if that's true. That's certainly what she thought. And I'm not with her anymore as an agent. So we can we can discuss whether that's a good opinion or a bad opinion. I think 
my conception, because I did a huge amount of YA research before I started writing this, because I did want to get the genre right, is it's mm. very, um, it's very emotion focused, is my understanding of the genre, in a way that it can still be a plotty book, but it's still very focused on the emotional quality of the mm. lead characters. And that, and those plots are in service of the emotions. And sometimes with more literary fiction, you have emotions in service of the plot, um, or you have a much larger thing, um, a much larger focus. And it's not just mm -hmm. about one person's emotions, it's about many people's emotions. Um, and I think with YA, you really get to drill down on one character, the lead, and their emotional process. And what, even if it's written in third person, it's still very much from one person's point of view. And I think that's valuable and fun and interesting. And middle grade is, I think, less engaged with why am I feeling these emotions and more of like, I'm feeling with these emotions. How do I deal with them? Um, but like, mm. YA gets to be navel gazy in a way I think. Um, other genres don't and maybe that's wrong i don't know um this is my first YA book <laughs> but i did do a lot of research because yeah. that's what i do is i just drill down and like i'm going to be an expert on this as much as possible um and the stuff i read it's it's all very emotional and it's in a good way um mm -hmm. that it really kind of gets at the heart of what um the main characters are feeling and that's what why did you oh yeah uh, and that's just the thing. Um, I read a lot of John Green. I read a lot of Sarah Dessen. Uh, Sarah Dessen's great um, because all of her books are like similar, but wildly different. And so um, you can really like, if you read enough of them, you can see the way they all kind of follow. And this is not a bad thing, not necessarily mm -hmm. a pattern, but a like an arc. And, but in different ways and in different catalysts that caused this arc. And though um, I definitely, uh, that was, I, I think the most instructive was to read a bunch of Sarah Dessen, who's just a master at this kind of hmm. very wet, emotional storytelling. Um, <laughs> and I mean that in a positive way. I feel like everything mm -hmm. I'm saying is negative because we don't value emotional stuff in media for the most part. It's like, but what's happening? And and YA, like, that's what's happening is what's going on inside. It's, it's so crazy to me because, like, I mean, what, like, the, the emotional work is, like, what we're invested in. And I think right. there's just, like, bad tense tendency in some of the more clickbaity websites, for example, to just treat, or, like, with Wikipedia, to just treat everything like a series of plot points that you're going through. What is the point of that? Like, no, I don't think that's actually why people read. I mean, it's why some people read. I think there's some people who really like a good plot. I think that's the beauty of literature is there's so many ways to tell a story and we have so many of them. Um, and like, I'm, re I'm really grateful to live now when we can tell, you know, queer and trans stories unabashedly and boldly mm -hmm. um, in a way that we couldn't before. And like, that's um, so liberating and wonderful. But like, again, going back to what you're saying, like, some people love a good plot. Like I love a good plot story. Like the Spencer books are just um, hmm. a very plot based thing. And they're, if you read a bunch of them, which I did um, when my daughter was very small and I had to rock her to sleep every night, 
<laughs> I just had the Kindle and just turned it down way low and read all of the Spencer books. There is like a glacial changing of the Spencer character, like who he is in the first books is not who he is in the later books, but it doesn't happen in one book. Um, mm-hmm. Like the point of the book is this very plot based journey. And that's, you know, cause it's a mystery because it's um, a very particular type of mystery, a very, in a, in a genre um, like it's a tough guy mystery and those tend to be plot based. Um, so there's like, I don't want to say like, that's a bad thing, right? Cause that's definitely something that some people like, and that's definitely something that's worth reading, but also it is fun for me as someone who looks for emotional beats and like why characters do the things they do to delve into more of an emotional, uh, genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One of the uh, other things I really appreciated from the book, you know, when I first heard about it, Galaxy, the Prettiest Star, I was like, oh, I really hope there's a Bowie tie-in with this. Because of the Bowie song, Prettiest Star on Aladdin Chain. You know, I didn't understand <laughs> there would be, but like, and then there definitely was, and it was very front definitely. and center. Um, talk to me about that decision. Right. Well, when you write a teen, when I write a teenage character, I don't want to say you, because everyone has their different process. Um, When I write a teenage character, my first thing is like, well, what was I like as a teenager? What did I like? And one of the things that really defined my teenage existence was discovering 70s era David Bowie for the first time. And that was so perfect for this story because it's a it's a nice little mirror to the story where we have an alien pretending to be human. And David Bowie's Mm -hmm. Ziggy Stardust era was all about him pretending to be an alien and then, but also that it was very queer and very kind of gender fluid um, in a way. And that was a nice thing to be like, to showcase that this kind of narrative, this kind of person uh, is not new. Like we're doing this forever, but like also as a queer trans person, you might latch on to 70s era David Bowie and be like, yeah, yeah, that's like me, right? And it is because mm-hmm. he's not trans, but he is um, a shade of gay. And that's mm-hmm. wonderful. And like, so w- when I heard that for the first time as a teenager, I was blown away about mm-hmm. how just extremely gay it was and how it made no bones about it. And, and that was just so beautiful to me. And so I wanted that energy in this book. And I wanted to be as unabashed as uh, 70s era David Bowie. And I think I succeeded in that. But anyway, mm. it was a clear touchstone for me growing up and it was something I wanted to pull back and put on, put on um, this book. Well, you know, one of the things I really believe is that comics are, I did a panel about this at New York Comic Con one year, that comics can very much be a gateway for folks to learn about art and media beyond comics that they might not have encountered otherwise. And so I really love the idea of some young person who maybe he's not familiar with Bowie at all, like discovering Bowie through this comic. Yeah, I think that's wonderful. I hope so. Um, because also that's a shame that they haven't discovered him on their own. Because, <laughs> uh, it's really worth it, a row. But like, that's why like all the references are queer people. Like I wanted to give this idea of like, we don't live in a vacuum. Like there are queer people all around, like Walt Whitman and Sally Ride, who you mm-hmm. may not consider queer people, but are queer people. And like, that's, a part of the human experience. That's right. You know, um, I also feel like a lot of people assume that 
folks don't care about music or art that isn't from their exact generation. And that is just so patently not true that I think it's really unfortunate that people kind of get forced and limited in that way in terms of what they think other people are interested in. I'm sort of on the extreme of that, but I think even people who do tend to like a lot of contemporary stuff also, especially if given the opportunity to find it, do have things that resonate that either it's music from their parents or an older sibling, or they come Mm -hmm. through it from a movie soundtrack or a comic, like connect connecting with the past in art and obsessing about music and art that might be from quote unquote before your time Mm -hmm. is not uncommon at all. No, no. I mean, like I got into Bowie because a friend lent me a mixtape and is like, here is not even a mixtape. It was just a recording of, uh, Ziggy Stardust. And I was like, here, you will like this. And I was like, <laughs> I did. I do like this. This is great. Um, <laughs> yeah. And also I wanted to avoid with this book doing the thing that annoys me again in other medium is when you have a teenage character who lives in the present day, but they really like the music of whatever the writer liked when they were a teenager. I didn't want to put any nineties bands in there, which was music that I liked as a teenager. But mm-hmm. I could put in a 70s band because that feels ancient. Uh, <laughs> it's 50 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, and so it feels more universal. I considered using Janelle Monet as an, as an oral touchstone instead, but it, it didn't feel as timeless to bring in someone mm-hmm. modern. And I liked how timeless it felt to bring in someone like Bowie, who has not only recorded this stuff 50 years ago, but is just has such a career and a presence that like, of course you like Bowie. He's so he's there. I love Janelle Monae also, by the way. But yeah, no, I felt it, it felt really good to me as a person, like to see this. I mean, and like Bowie is throughout. Like Bowie is the chapter yeah. titles, folks. Yeah, we had some lyrics in there too, and we were told in no uncertain terms from yeah. the David Bowie estate that we could do that. And I'm like that's fair. Yeah, you can have the chat. You can use song titles, um, and you can use a tiny bit of a lyric. <laughs> I was like, okay. I'll, I will choose that carefully. Um, yeah. And, uh, that was it. And the, the David Bowie biopic graphic novel couldn't use, like, right. extent, was not allowed to use extensive lyrics. And, like, I understand being very protective of that, and I get it. And I honestly think, like, the the scene, the scene with, um, at the party, where Taylor's doing karaoke, had the lyrics in it. And um, in the original draft. And then that, when we were told we couldn't use those lyrics, I was like, well, I've got this space to fill. So I amped up the, the narration because I, I, I had more room mm. um, and could do that. And like, I love that scene so much more than if we had gotten to use the lyrics. Oh, cool. Um, so it was, yeah. a, it was a happy accident in that way. Um, or I guess a, a silver lining that looked like a dark cloud. Right. Yeah. No, it's all about problem solving, like you said, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so uh, let's talk about the GLAAD Award nomination. What, what is, oh, before, what is we of- before we do that, Sorry, yes. you did promise your listeners that we would talk about the best era of David Bowie. Oh, I just thought that the question answered itself. But yes, you may uh, <laughs> explicitly. I've, I've been thinking home. about this, okay? <laughs> oh, oh, I, I thought response. maybe I was wrong. I, 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 I assumed we'd answer. Right. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. I mean, obviously, it's it's a... It's a question with two prongs, right? Because there's like, what is objectively the best era? And then what is my favorite era? Which are two Mm. different things. 
Um, objectively, the best era is, as we've talked about, the early 70s era, because that is also the gayest era. So, like, <laughs> absolutely, the best time is um, Ziggy Stardust, Aladdin Sane, all of that stuff, um, where he was really, like, doing some not only amazing stuff with songwriting, but also amazing stuff with performance and, like, really involving... I don't know if you've seen stuff from the Latin Sane tour, but it was nuts. It was like yeah. a Broadway show. Um, yeah. So it was really just a pushing the envelope in a way that I think he tried to do again, several other times throughout his career, but never quite succeeded as, as when he was doing it at that time. So definitely seventies era, Aladdin Sane, Ziggy Stardust era, the best. Personally, <laughs> hmm. I love the late nineties era, the outside and, Earthling mm. era that a lot of people don't. Um, they don't? Mm. Yeah, it's not thought of as like the best time because it was like when he was, it comes off of like the Tin Machine era, which is not well beloved. And then yeah, he's trying to find himself again. About that. Yeah. yeah. And it's a, it's I more it like a comeback era. I yeah. Know. It's not I mean, quite I guess- a comeback era, which I think was ours really. And that was more of him getting back. That is so funny. I completely, and it might be because of like the specific scene I'm from, but I completely view it opposite. I feel like nobody pays attention to ours and that outside and earthling work, the comeback era. But Mm. I also like, I'm from like the goth industrial scene. So partnering with Trent Reznor is exactly what you do to be contemporary and relevant, obviously. Yeah. yeah, I also did get to see that tour, but like that is my perception. (laughs) I mean, I'm with you. I think, I think the outside and earthling represents him trying a lot of stuff that didn't stick. Right. And like, one of those was like partnering with Trent Reznor and him being super influenced by French techno at the time, which is a wild thing to choose. And then it, with ours and then later albums, he kind of abandons that and goes back to um, the songwriting that he had done before. But it's this weird kind of dark industrial stuff that I loved and I think was an attempt to do something that ultimately he abandoned. Um, mm. And I think that there was a huge kind of embracing of ours, which is different than Earthling by a wide margin. I remember that media blitz. And so maybe that's just my perception where it seemed like everybody was embracing ours. And and while Earthling certainly got played on the radio, I don't hear it brought up as like a classic Bowie album, even though it's one of my That's so wild. Well, I like literally never heard ours until he died. And I was making sure that I hadn't like, that there was anything I had missed. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I don't know if it's fondly remembered, but at the time it was like, Bowie is back, baby. He's doing sad songs. Get ready. Um, <laughs> there is a through line from ours to Black Star that is very interesting. Mm. And you can see that. Though I think that Black Star is a little more honest, right? Because mm. like so much of ours is like, like it feels like he must have talked to some friends of his and be like, so tell me, what does it feel like when none of your dreams come true? Oh, man. Because like, how is he possibly writing this from his own experience? Um, mm. Whereas Black Star does indeed feel like from his own experience. So I wonder, like, there's a certain sort of like training wheels element of ours that you can see in Black Star. I think, again, I'll have Mm. to, I'm just, now I'm just talking off the cuff. So I may be making bullshit up, but I feel like that's No, no, this is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Well, there, there you have it, listeners, the definitive answer and the personal answer alike. And also the Ilana read of history through the lens of DC Goth scene. 
<laughs> oh my god. Um, yeah. No, I, I I have a Bowie tattoo myself. So this is oh, all nice. stuff that I a lot in Saint Era. Um, so yeah, and I I've been telling like just. I don't even know if I'll ever have the opportunity to mention this again. So I'll mention it here. I really wanted like my Jack Kirby fourth world Broadway musical in which Bowie would play Metron. This was my, I mean, Oh yeah. That'd be great. Right. He's Metron, but like the whole diamond dogs and the atomic dogs at the atomic nights. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of diamond there's dogs a lot there in Armageddon. Like fourth world, new gods, dystopia stuff is like very diamond dogs. So well, and it's concurrent, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the Kirby stuff happened in the seventies when, like, um, Bowie was doing it. Like that was in the water, and yeah. to look at the designs in the fourth world, to look at costume designs that Bowie was doing, and to be like, I don't know if they were directly influencing each other, but they were being influenced by similar stuff because there is overlap. Mm-hmm. And totally, like, yeah. Thank you for letting me have my moment. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> like, when I this want come you to know Who I agree with knows? you 100%. Excellent. Thank you. So so let's talk about the GLAAD Awards. Um, what, yeah. did, what does it mean to you to be nominated for a GLAAD Award? It's incredible. Um, like, I don't, I don't even know what to say about it. Um, ultimately, ultimately, it is meaningless because um, I, I didn't write this book to win awards. I wrote it so that it would be like, I wrote it cause I wanted it when I was a child and it didn't exist. Yeah. That is the main thing. Um, and like, and I have seen it in the hands of teenagers and children and, and that is enough for me to know that it exists for them in a way it never did for me. Um, mm. that said, <laughs> it's fun to see it up there with, um, just some really brilliant books and have galaxy be counted as like, this is also brilliant. Um, or at the very least noteworthy, at the very least worth shining a spotlight on. And that's, that's really, it means a lot to me. Um, yeah, I didn't expect it. Um, there's a, this is also like a year where it's such a good year for comics, right? Like it was mm. so good. There's so many wonderful comics that came out this year, many of them dealing with queer themes and trans themes. And it's like such a, a crowded space, right? Um, like I, I feel grateful that Galaxy came out at all, and I was like, "But this come out this time," and when all this beautiful work was being put out, and I was like, "Oh, I hope someone notices my little uh, alien trans book," um, and they have, and that's great. Mm-hmm. And it says something that's in that category. There's not another DC book, right? Like that's all independent stuff but there's galaxy and then there's the DC pride issue now. And it's funny cause it's like superhero stories, which is what DC publishes um, are thought of as like lesser, right? Like they're, they're bombastic and they're, um, you know, they're not thought of as serious works. And so to have something that is a superhero story and deals with those superhero tropes, but does it in a, um, very YA navel gazing kind of way and to have that still be recognized is, is neat. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just amazing. It's amazing to be nominated. Like I wasn't expecting it. Um, it would be really cool to win honestly, but it's <laughs> like, it's not something I'm counting on. Cause again, it's a great year for comics and I'll probably go to something else. 
Um, if it goes to DC Pride, I'm still claiming it because I was there. You go, board. yeah. But it would be really amazing um, to win that and have it recognized on such a big stage. Um, but it is again enough to be nominated, and like, like people always say, it's an honor to be nominated. And sometimes that's true, and sometimes that it's not. But it is the truth <laughs> in this time um, because it's like I honestly didn't think anyone would notice. Um, I've written, I've written other books. Like I wrote Battle of Blood and Ink and no one noticed that one. It just kind of flew under people's radar, which is fine. It's not good. <laughs> That's not oh. true. The art is great. Uh, Steve Walker, who drew it, did a great job, but it's one of those things where you look at something you wrote 10 years ago and been like, I would write this entirely yeah. differently now. Um, so I don't want to say the book is bad because Steve worked really hard and did an amazing job on the art. Um, but it's just neat to have a, a book that not only people like, but also notice and to read and see. And I, I, I love that it's this book. I love that this is the character that I will for, hopefully forever be identified with because I love her. And I also partially own her. So I get to decide what happens to her to an extent. I love that great. fact. Yeah. Well, it was a nice little uh, perk of the situation. It's just like, if there's something that DC wants to do with her that I don't like, I do get to talk them out of it. Um, but <laughs> for the most part, um, I've been really happy with with her and what she's done and what they've done. Who's a character that you would love to see her interact with from, the, from, the, from, D- from DC? Well, therein lies a tale, because the original draft of this book had Ma Hunkle in it. Um, oh, I love it. I know. She's my favorite character in DC, bar none. Um, She's like the first DC superheroine. She's the second superheroine overall, which is mind-blowing. And she's wonderful. And she doesn't get the respect that she deserves, I think. Because if you read those old Scribbly stories, they are so wonderful. And the, the character is so beautifully drawn um, and detailed in a way that I think people lose when they try to bring her into a modern context. Um, mm. Also, she's a big old dyke. And like, that's obvious to me yes. anyway. So that's a good point. I wanted her in galaxy as, and running a grocery store right there. And, um, and I was told there was, too, <laughs> I get told a lot when I, from editors, like there's too many characters. Cause I love characters, obviously. And I'll, I overstuff my cast and they're like, can't have this many people in here. I'm like, oh, are you sure? Because like, you know, I grew up reading, you know, Justice League and X-Men and Excalibur. So like a proper cast is one that's 12 to 15 people at all times. <laughs> um, but that's not true. Um, so I had to cut a lot of people. And immediately the character that was cut, one of the first cuts was Ma Hunkel because it was like, this character's not really adding anything to the story. And I'm like, well, I want her in though. No. And I For folks who don't know, she's like the golden age red tornado. Yeah, she's the golden age red tornado. She has a pot on her head. She's a stocky, like a like the term broad, when you hear the <laughs> a woman described as a broad, that's Mahungle. She is a mouthy broad. And she her origin is that she noticed that her kids don't listen to her but they listen to Green Lantern. So she's like, oh, <laughs> I just need to be a superhero and they'll listen to me. So she makes a costume, has a pot in her head, but the he- eye holes cut in. And it's like, I'm the red tornado. And she comes into her kid's room at night and is like, go to bed. 
<laughs> little hellions. <laughs> and they're like, right, you're a superhero. We will go to bed. And then she goes out through the window, of course, and then stops a crime on the street because it's happening in front of her and she doesn't care. She would have done it out of costume, but because she did it in costume, she's now a superhero. And he's like, oh, I like this. And started like fighting like uh, Nazis for one, because it's golden age, but also corrupt city officials and various forms of organized crime. And she would do it the, the same way every time, essentially, which she would just charge in and mouth off and punch people. And I love that. <laughs> And it's not a female character we get to see very often, like that type. And certainly not as, again, like we say, as a lead. She's usually a a comedic relief, a side character or something. But I just love that here's this woman who is not drawn like a Barbie doll, who has children, is older, and is just rough and tumble. And just is like, I'm going to punch you in the face because you're an idiot and a jerk. And... Ah, she's just such a brassy dyke. And again, that's not canon. This is me interpreting. To write her, I would make her a canon brassy dyke, which I don't even know if they would let me do, but that's what I would hope to do. And anyway, she was in there because I wanted to set up a non-powered hero, non-powered mentor with a powered apprentice dynamic. Mm Because I love those. I love it when there's like Like someone with superpowers and then a character who doesn't have superpowers, but who is a superhero being like, you rely on your powers too much. Here's how you survive in a fight. Like that was a dynamic I wanted if we ever got a sequel. And like, I was told both that there were too many characters that Mahanka was not adding to the narrative. And also <laughs> it was better for this book to only be original characters. I was like, all of that is true. I, I even like was took her out of the plot and I was like, I'll show you she's essential because I'm taking her out and you're going to miss her. And then I took her out and read the plot and I was like, no, you're right. She's not doing anything. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so I would like, I still want to have Ma Hunkle be her mentor and her be an, uh, a queer gender non-conforming woman. Um, but we'll see if I ever get to do that. That's very cool. That's that's who I'd want. Um, as far as other team ups, um, we we've hinted at, at her having a friendship with Dreamer, which is always something I would love to write. Um, I, I I loved writing Alyssa Yo, so having having mm-hmm. those two team up to do something like the ideal book for me would be like a Birds of Prey relaunch with oh, all trans yeah. characters <laughs> and just have <laughs> galaxy and dreamer and alicia yo do stuff and like have um oh no what's her name victoria Hello? october victoria october being oh like, yeah like the in the oracle row in the chair she, yeah 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 she's the she's the woman in the chair i'd love that if i was if anybody at dc is like what do you want to do you get to do anything <laughs> like that's my that's my thing People would really enjoy that. So I, maybe that could enjoy it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, speaking of additional DC work, let's talk <laughs> about the DC book of pride. Cause I got, I, we definitely had a lot of people asking about that. Yeah. Um, um, I love the DC book of pride. So this is a, a reference book more than anything else. It's got profiles of many of the queer characters in DC comics. Um, 
when I was approached to do this book, I was like, well, why aren't we doing all of them? Why are we only doing this number? And, I, and then I found out in my research it's because there's 200 queer characters and they didn't want to do a book with uh, that was like a tome. So they were like, we're just sticking to these. I'm like, all right, fair. Um, I got them to put in some obscure ones, which pleased me. Um, I can't talk about the list yet because it's a wait mm. and see when the book comes out kind of thing. Sure. Um, but sure. they have released that some some obvious people are in that. Harley and Ivy are in it. Thunder is in it. All the canon queers that you know, they're in there. Galaxy is in it because um, I made sure of that. And another perk of her being in main continuity because uh, it's all main continuity people. We Again, because we only had so much space. We were like, well, we can't use people from alternate realities. We're, we're not doing future people from Legion of Superheroes. That's a whole nother book. I'd love to do a volume two of it, honestly, and pick up some of the characters we didn't include because there's so many and I love them all. Um, I fell in love with so many characters writing this book that I didn't realize. Like, I didn't care about the Blue Snowman mm. before. And now they're just this wonderful little goblin person. And I'm like, yeah, hit somebody else with a wrench, you little weirdo. <laughs> That's so much fun. And this is definitely like a reference book that I think everybody is going to want to have on their shelf. And yeah, it's amazing that it exists at all. Honestly, like here we have a book that's like celebrating all these queer characters and it's aimed at like a younger reader set as like here. It's like the um, very even the bold book that came out a few years ago. That's talking about all the women characters that in DC and to have this one just be about all the stripes of the homo rainbow. Cause we have gay people, lesbians, bisexuals there's non-binary people in there there's trans folks there's all of it is in there and i I just it's really it's really nice to have a book with such breadth to have all these characters um and to see how many of them are leads which is great like and um but to also see like how many characters stories are told in the spaces between the lead stories and like we talked about earlier and you have things like Holly Robinson meeting a uh, a nice girl at a convenience store. And then six to ten issues later, they've moved in. And you never get to see their romance together, but it happened. Um, and so uh, it was neat. To, it was wonderful to research. It was wonderful to write. Like, it was, I just had a lot of fun. Yeah. And I, I just know how much those kinds of guidebooks or sometimes people will pick those up before they even really get to pick up many comics because they want to know where to begin. And so I think it's yeah. an opportunity to be an intro place for a lot of people. And it's a night. Nice, yeah. It was, it's nice to kind of like sum up their storylines and sum up who they are um, and what they've done. And like, how do you, especially, I mean, continuity is so convoluted. So to have a nice little guidebook that very simply lays out these characters is great um and again like i said it was just i love reading comics about gay people so it was a wonderful thing to research hmm. frustrating right because the hmm. dc followed the comics code authority until like the early 2000s and so that the comics code forbid like any mention of queerness right so a lot of these characters that are older than 20 years had nudge nudge wink wink um, elements to their queerness and to their identity. And it's like, and that was uncomfortable to read and to read it now and to see like what they were, 
like people trying to hint at is is both wonderful because like even with these very repressive editorial mandates these characters were still there and they were still existed um but also it's like but they couldn't be out in the same way that say galaxy is um because of a, a mandate that didn't even come from dc that came from something that was started in the 50s and an, an outside organization um mm-hmm. and then there, that has a certain like effect on how these stories are told and you see later characters like even after they stopped using the comics code badge right there's still this sort of nudge nudge wink wink about who characters are with and what their relationships are um and that's and it's nice to know that we don't have to do that anymore but it was still like a little demoralizing to read all these comics and be like yeah this character is queer clearly queerly queer they're clearly queer and like you're not saying anything about it and it uh, drives me up the wall. Again, I'm glad we live in the time we do now. Um, or we can have these books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, um, and I, I understand that feeling. And, you know, really, sometimes you can really see the seams of where creators tried so hard to make something so clear and weren't allowed to. And then you can see right. the times where, like, it's the fans who are kind of reading into it, and you think the creators maybe don't even notice what they've done, you know? Um, yeah, and it's really it's really affected the way fans look at comics. I think, like, I had people ask me about Galaxy, a character whose trans experience is the entire book, and who is wearing a flat trans flag on the cover, and who has sex with a girl in the book uh, if she is actually gay and trans because we are so used to um, these kind of stories where it's been waved away and like creators being like, I don't want to say that they're gay or trans because I don't want to alienate um, non-gay and trans readers. Uh, And we're used to that. We're used to this sort of wishy-washiness. And so like when you have something as blatant as Galaxy is, it's still looked at and like, well, are you sure though? Are we clear? Are we being clear about this? And that's, but then you have things like Bruce Wayne getting his face very close to another male character's face. And everyone's like, oh, they're about to kiss. That's proof that Bruce Wayne is bisexual. And it's just like, we are so used to reading between the lines because of the history of queer suppression, right? That when we have someone who's absolutely on the lines is that the opposite of between the lines let's say so you have things that are on the lines we're distrustful of it and we don't uh see it for what it is because just because Mm. we've been trained by history uh and that's a real shame and it really kind of was visible reading these old books and seeing the ways that plausible deniability had to be in every action of these characters um and i'm glad that's not the case anymore well, thank you so much for your work there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it. When, it's, when is it going to be out? It is going to be out in May, um, May 16th, I believe. And uh, yeah, it's a, just a celebration of these characters and who they are and 
you know, their relationships and like me trying to just like tell the queerest version of their stories and fill in the gaps that were left out. Um, and in some cases I didn't have to do that. Like um, the more modern characters like Jackson Hyde, like you can talk about his relationships with dudes because that's canon and on the page. And then there's other characters where it's like, well, if you piece this together and I had to be more of a detective, um, you can see that. Uh, but all the characters are wonderful, like the ones we ended up as. Um, there's some favorites of mine that didn't get in the book, which is sad. But I think the ones that are in the book are, it's a good representation of all the different types of queer characters that DC does, which are a lot. Um, they're not necessarily all leads and they're not necessarily um, gotten in my opinion, enough of their story told, but they're there and they're queer and you should get used to it. Well, before we go, you had a very funny post about uh, hot girl mm-hmm. and her football preferences. Now I, I am <laughs> unclear on what football is and how it is played and these, in- but a, I, I could tell it was very funny. So now I need your head cannon. Sure. Well, I love Kendra in general because she is a mouthy broad. And we've talked about that's one of my favorite character tricks <laughs> already. Um, but like, um, I, I loved her because she came into the JSA, which is run by grandpas. And she was like, I'm not going to listen to you just because you're a grandpa. I know how to be a superhero. And that's by hitting things hard. And I can do that and fly around on these wings. So lay off, old man. And um, I just, I love, I love a character with a bad attitude, I guess. Uh, so she's a bad attitude queen. She's got a killer right hook and a loud voice. And the JSA, when she was part of it, was headquartered in Philadelphia. Um, she's not from Philadelphia, but she's obviously spent a lot of time there because she was with the JSA. And I just feel like the city would have embraced her. I feel mm-hmm. like she's got big Philly energy from <laughs> jump. And then the Philadelphia sports team, football team is the Eagles, which are in the Super Bowl uh, today. In fact, as we are recording it, we'll see if they um, succeed in their Super Bowl <laughs> attempts. Uh, it's anyone's game, as they always say. Um, I'm rooting for them to win just because the city is insufferable when they lose. So <laughs> I hope they do win. But last that's, time that's they were in this, yeah. yeah, last time they were in the Super Bowl, one, the quarterback, I believe at the time, appropriated in a good way the Millwall uh, football hooligan chant of no one likes us. We don't care Um, because like a lot of people don't like the Eagles and that's fine. They don't have to, we don't care. And I also feel like that's big Kendra energy because Mm. people don't like her. (laughs) Yeah. Like she's like everyone's second favorite hot girl. <laughs> like we all love Shaira because she was in the cartoon and like, she's the one who's been hot girl since the sixties. And it's like, who is this new person who doesn't quite fit in continuity? Right. Um, and who has a bad attitude. And I, I just, but I love her because of that. Like I love an underdog. I love people who other, I love characters that other people don't like. Um, and I, and I, if you can combine that with a mouthy broad, then like I'm sold. So, Kendra is my favorite JSA person. And I feel like she would wear a t-shirt that says, no one likes us. We don't care. So I Photoshopped mm-hmm. one onto her and it looks right to me. Like 
Yes. She would not care that no one likes her. Like, that's not why she's there. She's not there to be liked. She's there to do a job. And that job is punching evil in the face. Um, I also love that that was her whole thing, right? Like, Hawkman gets a mace. And for a long time, she just had armored gauntlets that she would just punch people with. I was like, this is so great. And then they gave her a crossbow. And I was like, this is not as cool as just, like, punching a bad guy right in the kisser. Um, She's kind of written in a very masculine way. Which, again, is like, I love a a character who is not a traditional female character. And, like, I think that's maybe why fans don't like her as much. Because she's brassy. And, like, even though she wore high heels for the longest time, um, (laughs) she has this sort of masculine energy. Not that she's trans or even gay. Uh, She's been established over and over how straight she is. And that's fine. But, like, she has an energy that other female characters don't. And I love. And, like. Sometimes that's softened because people forget that she's not Shaira. <laughs> they write her as if she is. Um, but like she's she's just this a bad attitude queen. And that's we love a bad attitude queen in Philly. Um, so when I was asked on Twitter who's my favorite JSA, um, I was like, obviously Kendra. I'm like, go birds, which is what we say because the team eagles has too many syllables and we would just like to say <laughs> one if we can please yeah i mean this means that she could have a team up with gritty at some point oh my god if only if only i've been accused by people of like trying to make the dc universe more like philadelphia because like in the <laughs> dc pride thing i i did i put um there was the gotham trans health conference trans wellness conference which is yes which on, is philly yeah which is based on the philly wellness conference right like and like i've i've done this bef- i've tried to do this before with other things and people are like stop trying to make the dcu philly and i will never stop I will thank never you stop i'm doing. fine with that you know i'm like a hardcore new yorker but philly is one of my favorite cities that isn't this one and i think that's <laughs> totally fine we have plenty of superhero stuff here you know you can totally have some stuff there we you know, I, I, I support it. And um, obviously I would like to have gritty and everything. So sure. <laughs> uh, a hot girl gritty meetup would be beautiful. Oh yes, totally. Sheer chaos and drinking gravy from a gravy boat with a straw. Uh, so yeah. I can see Kendra do that. I can yeah. absolutely see her do that. That's the thing. It's like, she is a character who will like do crazy stuff like that. Um, because she doesn't care and mm-hmm. or not she cares about very specific things and like doesn't really care about her image and I, I love that um and again she's been the whipping girl in so many storylines where she has to suffer so that other people can have a heroic moment um and that is another mm. thing that just um endears her to me well thank you so much for coming on the show tell our listeners what's the best way for them to keep up with your work um I used to say like social media handles, but I don't like social media anymore. Mm. <laughs> I've been on it too long. Like I was an early adopter for a lot of stuff and I've slowly been like uh, devolving on that. Um, so like, don't follow me on Twitter. I'm barely going to post anything. Uh, Fair enough. <laughs> but um, there's always my website, jedzyaxelrod.com. I have a newsletter, tinyletter.com slash planet X. Um, my Instagram is planet X. My Twitter is planet X. I, hop on those hopped on those sites early to claim those um 
because my podcast used to be the voice of Free Planet X, uh, which is still available to listen to if you want. Newsletter is probably the best. I'm trying to do that more and getting people because I'm a long form writer to begin with. So doing tweets was never something that came naturally. Mm. But yeah, follow me there or just, you know, uh, buy my books. You don't have to follow me online. Yes. Cool. Folks, can uh, buy, buy your Galaxy, <laughs> buy the DC Book of Pride. It's a wonderful book. Uh, it's an absolutely beautiful book that I'm so proud to be a part of. Um, there's more stuff coming down the pike that I can't talk about that is wonderful and you will love if you like Galaxy. Um, yeah. So, like, that's the best way to follow me is to buy my books. Go buy the book. Go. Uh, please. Um, which people have been doing. It's uh, being. I'm told very successful in a way no one was expecting. Um, so that's very exciting. So keep contributing to that is what I'm saying. Uh, it's also a beautiful book. Like just Taylor did an amazing job um, just making it look like nothing else on the shelves and really imbuing it with their own style and essence. And, and just you can feel the joy they had making it, which I really love. Um, so it's a beautiful book to own. You should definitely own it if you like nice things, which, you know, you seem like an erudite listener. You probably already owned it. Buy it for someone mm-hmm. else then. <laughs> That's true. I like to get these books for my friends with kids and be like, you can read this also your kid. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great book. I'm going to say it again. The more people buy it, the more DC will want me to do more stuff. And that's what I want to do. Uh, yes, so that is how it means. works. And so for our listeners, you know, this has been Graphic Policy Radio. Very soon, Jadzia will be joining us on Deep Space Dive, the official Deep Space Nine podcast of Graphic Policy Radio. And she'll be joining us to talk about Kira. No, haha, that's not true. She's joining us to talk about Jadzia. I know, who could have possibly guessed? Her namesake and uh, obviously a favorite character. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you. Oh, I am also looking forward to it. The only thing I can talk about more than myself is probably Star Trek. So love it. I'm very excited. And um, as for me, I am still on Twitter for however long it may take, but I'm also on Mastodon and I have my handle Elana underscore Brooklyn. That's E L A N A underscore Brooklyn on just about whatever social platform there is. So um, hopefully I'll be making that migration, but for now I'm still on the, the thing. And as always, we really appreciate your reviews for Graphic Policy Radio on whatever podcast platform you listen to. It really does make a difference. So please rate it, review it, and keep it geeky.